Welcome to World of Soundtracks, where we explore the musical storytelling aspects in films and TV. Whether it is comparing book adaptations, observing themes or motifs over a series, or micro-analyzing the choice of instruments, we look at how the story is told and moves us. I am your host, Ruth Mudge, and today we begin a two-part series on Pride and Prejudice. In this episode, I will be focusing on the 1995 miniseries featuring Jennifer Ellie and Colin Firth. The following episode will be focusing on the 2005 Kira Knightley movie. While I do recommend listening to two very different takes on the same story, I do realize that some of you are quite passionate about one and have absolutely no interest in the other. I will not be comparing which Mr. Darcy is the best or whether the coming out of the lake in the wet shirt is sexier than the hand flex, or which adaptation is more accurate to the books. So leave your controversies at home, and let's explore the music. First of all, music is essential to any Jane Austen adaptation. Part of that is due to how much music is integral to the plot. There is always at least one woman, if not the main heroine, who plays the piano or harp. Whether we hear them in practice or as entertainment for friends and family, the level of their playing can already tell us a lot about the various characters, both personality and class-wise. In this miniseries of Pride and Prejudice, there are at least 10 performances on the pianoforte of classical music, not to mention the different dance tunes added on top of that. Mary Bennett performs the most, as the most dedicated and unfortunately not as gifted, as we hear her practicing, playing in the background at their Aunt Phillips, or painfully singing and stumbling through Handel's Slumber, Dear Maid, in comparison to Mrs. Hurst's ridiculously fast tempo of the Turkish March by Mozart to show off and save the Netherfield Ball listeners from the appalling Bennett clan, to Georgiana's beautiful but shy playing of Andante Favori by Beethoven, which was briefly marred by the wrong chord when she hears Wickham's name. Not only do they tell us about the characters in their performance, as far as class and how much they practiced, but it also connects characters in the plot. One of the most romantic moments is when Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy connect eyes, as Elizabeth comes to Georgiana's rescue during her piano performance. Not to mention that they timed it beautifully with a harmony change in the music. Here is the original Beethoven piece, and you can hear how they work to time everything perfectly with the characters' interactions.
I don't know about you, but I have seen the miniseries so many times that I'm used to the mistake instead of the original. This scene is a beautiful change from the book, where Mr. Wickham was mentioned over tea instead of an evening performance. This change gives Elizabeth and Georgiana a moment to connect over playing music, to talk over Mr. Darcy and his generous gift of the new pianoforte, and for Darcy to witness Elizabeth actively assisting Georgiana. But it also allows more time for heart eyes, longing looks, and less time for speaking. This classical piece is also the only one that changes the orchestration, adding strings to the piano piece to add in the soft, romantic feeling near the end. That being said, Elizabeth's Mozart aria that she sings returns in a different orchestration with flute and strings, as Mr. Darcy recalls that evening in his thoughts later on, in thinking about Lizzie. Another essential music part of a Jane Austen adaptation is your ball. These are always the big plot moments for connection between the main hero and heroine, or to add angst in seeing them with a the wrong person, as in the case with Sense and Sensibility. In this Pride and Prejudice, they use traditional dance tunes that go as far back as the Elizabethan period. The two balls have different sizes of ensembles and instruments to show a contrast between the small town of Meryton and the more raucous, less formal setting with the sophistication, polish, and grandeur of Netherfield. In fact, the trio of musicians who play in the Meryton Ball are a trio who often play for village dances, so they already had that style of folk rawness to it. They also chose faster dances, such as jigs or reels, to lend to the momentum and the activity. In contrast, the Netherfield Ball had eight players, with the sound of being hired from London, according to the composer Carl Davis. Even the use of the brass instrument gives a certain level of weight and class. Now, of course, we can't talk about dances without mentioning Mr. Baverage's Maggot, a dance tune from 1728 which also was used in the Emma movie of Gwyneth Paltrow's in the 90s. I know there are many other scholars who can tell you that the dance tune was outdated for the Regency period, or that the dance steps were cut and altered to work for screen and the dialogue, but it has become one of the most iconic moments from the movie. With the use of a folk tune, you will hear it repeat in different variations to add color and prevent it from sounding the same, while still giving a sense of routine for the dances. Here, different melody instruments shine with flourishes between the violin and the flute, with one time involving a lot of harpsichord scalar action when there is less dialogue, as the dancers continue to work up and down the ballroom. This version of the tune is also a bit slower to match the tempo that they want for the dialogue, as well as longer time to focus on the hands touching 
and having a graceful stateliness as they have the battle of wits or as they dance. Most versions are usually this slightly faster tempo instead. When it comes to the main dance between the lead couple of the story, many adaptations choose to either change the instrumentation of this crucial dance by bringing in an entire orchestra, as is in the case with Emma, or stripping it down to a solo instrument like it does in the movie version of Pride and Prejudice. Others choose to use music from the original score instead of a traditional tune, such as the miniseries of Emma from 2009, or they have a big change as they stare into each other's eyes, as happens in the miniseries of War and Peace. Yet this particular miniseries chooses to stay faithful to the sound and era by not changing anything for the main couple. Instead, they choose a traditional piece that would work well for the movement, connection, and dialogue while staying true to the sound of the rest of the soundtrack. It should be noted that when music is required for the actors to perform or dance, These need to be chosen at the beginning of the filming process. This also means that if it is original music, then the composer has to already think of their style and main themes. In this case, since all the dances and piano pieces are all classical or traditional tunes, meant that Carl Davis could focus on the original score at the end of the filming project, which is more typical once the composers can see a rough cut of the finished product then they can match the timing and get the feel more accurately. However, that does cut down on the amount of time they have to get it done. For those of you who may not be familiar with Carl Davis and his work, let's give you just a little bit of background on him. Carl Davis is an American composer who moved over to the UK in the 1960s. In the film world, he is most known for writing new scores for 1920s silent films, including a few Charlie Chaplin films and Ben-Hur. He became one of the leaders in that field, as most people do not have their own private piano player to provide a score in the background when watching these films. He has also written music for several ballets recently, such as Alice in Wonderland, Cyrano, and Aladdin. For the masterpiece BBC audience, he is most known for his work with adaptations, such as Silas Marner, The Pickwick Papers, Cranford, in the newer Upstairs Downstairs, as well as the film The French Lieutenant's Woman, for which he won a BAFTA. As a composer who well understands the classical music heritage, he was an excellent fit for bridging the old and new for Pride and Prejudice, in fact sought out to be the composer for this project once he heard it was happening. One side thing to remember is that this was the beginning of the Jane Austen Golden Age, For those of you who may not remember, the mid-90s had a surge of Austen adaptations, with five out of six novels covered in the span of four years between movies and TV adaptations. For myself and many of my generation, these adaptations were our introduction into reading and falling in love with Jane Austen. At the time, this Pride and Prejudice was being billed as sexy, daring, and fresh compared to the previous 80s adaptations. 
Of course, part of that was due to the screenwriter Andrew Davies using the words sex and money, and the press went a bit bananas as to what that could mean. While he had pushed the boundaries much more in recent years, that was not really the case then. There was a lot of movement of cameras and characters compared to the 70s and 80s adaptations, which felt much more like watching a stage. The fact that the opening of Pride and Prejudice included writing, skipping, walking, with and without dialogue, lent a sense of energy and liveliness that set the tone not only for the characters, but for the series as a whole. The music in turn reflects this energy and vitality, both in its movement on the keyboard, but also in the choice of time signature and key. This leads us into the opening theme and choice of instruments. One of the most unique aspects of this particular soundtrack is the use of the pianoforte, or a forte piano. Most historical records refer to it as the forte piano, but Jane uses the term pianoforte in her works, which means I often end up using the words interchangeably, so I apologize for any confusion. This particular instrument is the keyboard most commonly used during the Regency period. While it was originally created around 1700, it gained popularity in the 1760s. This was the next step from the harpsichord, which plucked the strings, to now using hammers to hit the strings, which is what happens with modern pianos. However, the forte piano did not have the metal support that amplifies sound, so it was naturally a quieter instrument than the modern piano. Here's an example from the newest Emma when Jane Fairfax is playing Mozart's Sonata in F number 12, movement 3. pianoforte ranged from four octaves to about six and a half around the time of Beethoven. Current pianos have seven and a third octaves, or 88 keys. The British company Broadwood was actually the company that sent Beethoven the larger six-octave piano. For those of you who know the movie of Sense and Sensibility with Emma Thompson, Colonel Brandon mentions that he had a Broadwood grand, referring to this company and the larger keyboard. Pedals were still being experimented with at this point, so most were still unable to have the more connected or legato sound that could be provided with a modern piano. While it could provide dynamics, hence the name of forte for loud and piano for quiet, which the harpsichord could not do, it still has a brighter, almost tinny sound to it that has a unique quality to it. The size also varied just the way pianos do today. We can see that evident in the miniseries from the larger grander ones at Pemberley or Netherfield or Rosings compared to the smaller keyboard that Mary practices on at home or even the one that she performs at at her Aunt Phillips. The size often reflects the class and wealth of the family. While the forte piano is more accurate to the Jane Austen world in the Regency era, the only adaptation that uses the forte piano and no modern piano is this Pride and Prejudice miniseries. Part of that is the fact that this miniseries tries to stay as period accurate as possible, but the other part is that the ensemble is smaller, 18 at the largest. That makes it easier to mix and mic in recording. The newest M soundtrack by Isabel Waller-Bridge 
does use pianoforte for the classical music performed by the characters, as we heard earlier, but all the other ones choose to use the look of the forte piano while hearing a modern piano. It's easier to keep in tune, it's more familiar for a modern audience, and it can have a larger range of legato, of dynamics, as well as having an emotional connection. The other unique aspect of the soundtrack for this miniseries is that there is a musical recap of each episode on the forte piano performed by Melvin Tan. While the soundtrack is sadly no longer available on Spotify or iTunes, it has been put on YouTube for those looking for it and who were not able to buy the CD in the 90s like I was able to. Carl Davis wanted the size of the ensemble to reflect the small-town nature of Meriton and Longbourn by using a smaller ensemble of 5 to 8 players, and then a larger ensemble of 18 for the scenes in London or the estates of Netherfield and Pemberley and Rosings. His biggest influence was Beethoven's Septet, written for clarinet, bassoon, horn, and four strings. This is the scherzo from Beethoven's Septet in E-flat major, which is often considered a heroic key at that point in time. sounds so similar, doesn't it? When an ensemble is this small, the woodwinds really stand out and blend in a unique way. In a similar fashion, the strings have a role in being the rhythmic and melodic underpinnings throughout the soundtrack. Each instrument has to carry more responsibility and roles since there are less of them. The opening title for Pride and Prejudice sets the stage for the entire story. It involves two different themes, which is appropriate in following the rules for music in the classical era for sonatas and symphonies to have theme A and theme B that are then developed, altered, and then come back in a recap at the end. In a long structure, that also happens throughout the miniseries. Your main themes are used in various shapes and forms to tell the story and then return at the end. I also like to call these bookends, which should happen in a good movie or a miniseries to connect and bring the whole story together through the music. Miniseries are almost easier since you have an opening title sequence and credits at the end, which often share the same musical theme. But ideally, this should happen within the story or the movie itself. Theme A, or the first theme, is the hunting theme, which ironically is first heard in the violins, but will later appear with a French horn giving both a sense of joyful activity as well as the fact that the Bennett family is searching for husbands, particularly Mrs. Bennett. The rhythmic aspect lends itself to the physical and mental activity, the walking, the writing, the witty mental battles that occur. This theme first plays as the men arrive on horseback, Elizabeth sees them, and she skips home, setting the mood for the entire series. There is always a sprightliness which occurs with a time signature of 6-8, often used for jigs or similar dances. A lot of it has to do with the emphasis of two larger beats, but then lighter two smaller beats afterwards. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 
as opposed to one and two and one and two and. This theme is also in major, which leads itself to being a joyful story. I'll play a minor version later so you can compare the feel. So we're going to start with the opening of Pride and Prejudice. We will get to the rest of it soon, I promise. This opening theme occurs several times throughout the miniseries. For example, this theme occurs as Elizabeth walks to Netherfield, fitting in that activity and physical nature, but also because she's visiting Jane, who was sent there to catch Mr. Bingley through Mrs. Bennet's schemings. The most clear version of the hunting call occurs near the end as Mr. Bingley rides over to propose, Mrs. Bennet's wishes from the beginning coming true. This is Return of Bingley. one of the versions that has the minor theme. Even though it's an exciting moment, there you can hear the flurry and the agitation of all the characters, especially Mrs. Bennett, as they're trying to get all the girls ready and go down to see Mr. Bingley. So there's a lot of activity and extra motion within the larger familiar theme, which is a lot of fun. Theme A is also used for Lydia Bennett in her unfortunate turn in finding a husband. It plays as she leaves for Brighton, when Mr. Bennett receives the letter that she ran away, and Lydia's own narration in the letter to Mrs. Foster, here heard in Lydia's elopement. theme remaining the same in major as Lydia is excited to marry her beloved Wickham, but the audience and her sisters know that the outcome turned out far worse, which is portrayed in the minor chords before and after the theme, and the rising diminished arpeggios with the main motive in the minor by the keyboard. Another example of the theme in minor occurs when Jane and Lizzie find out that Mr. Bennett had received an express regarding Lydia and not knowing whether it was good or bad news. This particular one is unique in that the melody isn't first in the pianoforte, but is actually in the cellos. They just play a little bit of that motif at the beginning, which gives it another sense of dread and uncertainty before the minor version is then transferred to the pianoforte. 
Moving back to happier themes, we are going to go to the second theme or theme B, which is the most prevalent throughout the entire series. This is because this is the love theme. It is slower and more lyrical in nature compared to the first theme, but there's still a flow and movement to it in the feel of 6-8. This love theme really is all-encompassing of the different kinds of love one can have, particularly for Elizabeth, from her sisterly affection with Jane, to love of a best friend with Charlotte, to a romantic love that grows for Mr. Darcy. This theme changes the most throughout the series, often slowing down to half the speed for more introspective moments or intimate moments, such as Lizzie teasing Jane about her Mr. Bingley, or in this case, Elizabeth arriving to visit Charlotte at the parsonage heard here in the clarinet. Because this theme is a little longer, it is often heard in smaller snippets, as we just heard, that still get the point across without using the entire theme. Here it is warmer in the clarinet and accompanying strings than it was in the pianoforte at the beginning. Despite their differences of opinion regarding Mr. Collins, Elizabeth is truly happy to see her closest friend, and that is reflected in the choice of instrument and theme. Of course, theme B becomes more prevalent as Elizabeth's feelings begin to change regarding Mr. Darcy at Pemberley, and so it becomes the theme as they are unknowingly walking towards each other. Using the French horn as a more regal instrument is frequently a choice made for the heroes of Austen adaptations, as the trumpet may have been belonging to those in higher status, so they're not quite royalty status, but it still has that gravitas and weight to it. The theme playing at this moment represents Mr. Darcy's feelings as much as Elizabeth's, as we know he still loves her and is in fact trying to get past it with little success. She is not quite there yet. So bringing back this love theme at the crucial crossroads in the story shows both where Mr. Darcy is coming from, as well as the confused, changing emotions that is occurring within Elizabeth.
also love that the clarinet and horn take turns with the melody as Elizabeth and Darcy are walking closer and closer to each other and then eventually join together in unison right before the climax of that large chord and the flute going up. The strings also provide a little movement, first having a little shimmer with tremolo, which is the bow moving very fast and unmeasured, and then later with offbeats to build up the anticipation for the audience. While that is one of the big moments in the adaptation, this theme does appear several times later, from when Mr. Darcy is getting dressed and excited to see Elizabeth again, or when he and Mr. Bingley return at the end. There is also a minor version when he is in London looking for Lydia, musically telling us that he is doing this for Lizzie because he loves her despite how odious the task is. While most of the romantic moments with this theme is for Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy, it does also accompany both sisters as they see their men returning near the end. It is fitting to have this theme of love that encompasses the entire movie for the double wedding at the end, first with the flute, an instrument often associated with more romantic moments and strings. This theme returns in the horn with a little more energy and being grounded with accents in the lower instruments as everyone leaves the church happily in love with a thrilled and emotional Mrs. Bennet, and finally the kiss of Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy bringing theme B to a beautiful conclusion in the higher register of the violins that always give a sense of soaring, both for the couple and for the audience finishing the story.
this love theme is not the only theme that changes throughout to fit with a story, as there is another specific love theme for Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy. While the other one is used for Elizabeth and several people that she loves, this one is specific for their evolving feelings. This theme has two parts, rising arpeggios heard in the forte piano, interspersed with the strings changing chords. It is a slower melody to match their slowly changing feelings and opinions. This is not a story of love at first sight. It is stately and almost repressed. It is first heard as Mr. Darcy watches Lizzie playing with the dogs after he comes out of his bath, and Elizabeth observed. This theme returns when they run into each other at Rosings in the woods, and then again as Lizzie arrives at Pemberley with the gardeners. In that particular occasion, the French horn and clarinet set the stage for Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy in this grand home, as Lizzie begins to see Mr. Darcy in a new light in Pemberley. Comparing these two themes in such close proximity, you can really tell the difference of the smaller ensemble versus the fullness of having more strings and having the French horn and clarinet and flute come through. It feels much richer and fuller, which is appropriate for arriving at the great estate of Pemberley. This is the main theme that plays as Elizabeth sees his portrait, hearing glowing accounts from the housekeeper. This time, Elizabeth and the audience is observing two sides of Mr. Darcy. Now, as a cellist, I'm slightly biased to the cello playing leading into the theme again as she's watching and looking at his picture. The theme crescendos as it leads to Colin Firth diving into the lake, so we clearly know the priorities of the writers and the directors involved as to what was important in Darcy Returns.
this love theme shows most clearly the difference of what instruments you use and how that can be setting the stage in the mood and feeling in the way that going from major to minor happened mostly with the hunting theme or changing the tempo really affected the first love theme. This one really changes mood depending on how many instruments and which ones are being featured that helps to set the stage. While the first love theme is used for the wedding, this second love theme is used for the second proposal. The first disaster of a proposal was in silence to let the words and reactions speak for themselves. That is also a good point of any Jane Austen adaptation is that you will need silence to hear Jane Austen's dialogue. They are so unique and special that you want to have that space. So the use of music is very carefully chosen. Usually as you're moving somewhere or you're walking somewhere or you're telling something about the character. However, any good romantic movie should have romantic music in a proposal. That is an unspoken expectation. This is a shy proposal. Having a second chance for both of them having grown and been humbled from their high opinion of themselves and their views. The space in this theme gives room for the words of the proposal to be heard and focused on. Flute enters near the second half as they discuss how things have changed for them both, but there are no harp glissandos or sudden changes of mood. It reflects who they are throughout their journey with a quiet joy for both of them matching the words from the book. Darcy was not of a disposition in which happiness overflows in mirth, and Elizabeth rather knew that she was happy than felt herself to be so. In contrast to the changing emotional journey of Elizabeth and the Bennets, or even Mr. Darcy, there are other character themes that return pretty much the same each time. One of the most recognizable ones is the bassoon theme for Mr. Collins. The bassoon gets a bit of a bad rap for being used quite frequently for buffoons and comedy, which are both at display in Mr. Collins. 
The other comedic element is the use of rests between chords, which is common in music to let the jokes or words speak for themselves, providing accents of color or matching the comedic beats of what is being shown on screen. Gardeners have a theme when they arrive from London, often when they are traveling back and forth, which is played in the horns. This reflects coming from the big city and also a calling card of arrival. This theme sounds to me the most like Beethoven or Mozart out of all the themes. It does play a bit more subdued and slower when they return to Longbourn after hearing the news regarding Lydia. The other theme that stands out the most is the theme for Lady Catherine de Bourgh. This is in the style of a French overture, which is from the Baroque period in the 1700s. It was used for courts and introductions with a lot of space and then a fast note to lead into it. This is an example by the French composer Jean-Baptiste Lully from the Overture of Atis. The other part that is very Baroque in style is all the ornamentations and the trills, especially in the forte piano. Baroque music often was filled with lots of trills and frills, sometimes written and sometimes added as improvisation. Using all the ornamentation in the grander, older style shows a level of aristocracy, but also being stuck in older times, or even stuck in her own ways for Lady Catherine. This device of using older Baroque music or instruments, such as the harpsichord, for characters in similar status of life and views, is often used in a few of Jane Austen adaptations, from the newest Emma to Sanditon. Lady Catherine's theme does not change, as she does not change. The other thing to note is that her theme is in minor, which makes her sound much more imposing. It is not a happy theme like the majority of the soundtrack in the adaptation.
a similar fashion, much of the music for London regarding Wickham or the Bingleys are often accompanied by trills and a similar overdotted rhythm, particularly when a letter is being narrated. They accompany a level of deceit and insincerity and showiness, such as Miss Bingley not really caring for Jane. There's a slower version of this when Mr. Darcy shares in his letter that he concealed Jane being in town. It is also used for Lydia and Wickham's wedding, with extra horns when Mr. Darcy appears at the wedding. It also is used to accompany the Wickhams as they come and go to Longbourn after the wedding, with lots of show, Wickham is being forced into the situation, and it is not a happy prospect of marriage. This is the other theme that is consistently in minor as Jane and Lydia's situations are not ones to rejoice in at these junctions. The other part that accompanies sadder or angsty moments are the use of suspensions and anticipations, frequently in minor. Suspensions have been used for a long time to hold a dissonant note before resolving down, and anticipations function the same way except they resolve up. You can hear that tensions in moments after the first proposal, or when Mr. Darcy is writing his letter, or when Mr. Darcy leaves Elizabeth after learning of Wickham and Lydia, and then when she remembers that moment later on. It can also be heard, as in this example, of Jane missing Mr. Bingley, having returned home from London in farewell to the regiment. All these anticipations and suspensions reflect the inner turmoil of the characters in hearing that tension. One of the most dramatic examples is when Mr. Darcy returns to Pemberley after he's trying to overcome his feelings. It lends to more drama and heightens the experience for the viewer, who already know that Elizabeth is there at Pemberley and the likelihood of them meeting is high. On 
on the subject of both inner tension and then bringing back the idea of bookends, one interesting thing to note is that Mr. Darcy's letter begins and ends with the same music as he begins to write and then as he concludes. A flute plays a minor arpeggio over accompanying strings, which is then followed by a clarinet and a responding pianoforte. The minor descending arpeggio was also used for the end of Jane's letter to Elizabeth, but the instrumentation is different here. The flute is also used to represent Georgiana as a sweet, younger person throughout the letter's narration, and as the first part of the letter revolves around Georgiana, it is fitting that the flute is used to musically bring together that portion of the letter. To bring this full circle, we should pay attention to the two parts when the French horn does clear hunting calls. It not only brings a sense of rejoicing and importance, but marks when two of the three ladies are getting close to getting married and getting that husband. The first is when the Bennett family receives the letter from the gardeners that Lydia has been found and is going to be getting married. Now the audience knows that Mr. Darcy has discovered Wickham and Lydia, so the music tells the audience that it is good news before it turns into the minor version of the main melody, as the family is in suspense not knowing the results. To me, this has always been one of the most dramatic cues in the whole adaptation. The even happier event is when they hear the news that Mr. Bingley has returned to Netherfield. What makes it even more fitting is that you see Mr. Bingley literally hunting birds right after this music plays. series of Pride and Prejudice uses the idea of theme and instrumentation to uniquely tell a story. The use of the pianoforte, the size of the ensemble, and the similarity of rhythm and harmonies from the classical era sets it in the age of Beethoven. The character themes help to musically tell you what kind of people they are and the journey the main characters take to grow and fall in love. 
It also captures the two main points of this adaptation, which is searching for husbands counterbalanced with the desire to choose love. Overall, it is a happy narrative, guiding the audience but not making it overly emotional. A beloved soundtrack for a beloved story. Next time, I will be focusing on the other Pride and Prejudice soundtrack from 2005 by Dario Marianelli. This is perhaps even more beloved as a standalone soundtrack, which I will delve into more. Until then, please share your favorite music moment or theme from this miniseries. Which part stands out to you the most? Which part moves you or makes you smile the most? Until next time, happy listening. A special thanks to all those involved in making this podcast happen, especially Edith Mudge for the original music and the graphics by Lindsay Bergsma. This is World of Soundtracks. Soundtracks.